0: Man, I'm so excited about uh, our time in the book of Acts, and uh, this passage is no exception. Uh, It's such an incredible passage, uh, really the second sermon of the first church, uh, the second presentation of the gospel by the apostle Peter, and we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. And you remember, last week, uh, if you weren't here, uh, there was the first miracle of the first church. Uh, Peter and John went to the temple, Uh, about 3 p.m. to pray. Uh, And as they were entering into the temple, uh, they noticed a man who had been sitting at the gate uh, for most of his life begging, who was lame. And Peter looked at him intently, we're told. uh, And he he said, listen, silver and gold I do not have for you. But in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he extended his hand to this this man who had been lame from birth, and and the man grabs his hand, and he is fully restored. And what we're gonna, what's gonna follow is the the intense uh, chaos that that followed this this miraculous event, where basically all the people in the temple began to gather in the courtyard around Peter and John and this man who's been healed, who's joyously praising God for this. Wholeness that he's experiencing for the first time in his life. Everyone knew this man because they walked by him daily. Uh, and, and here he is standing and dancing and praising God. And you can imagine the scene that it would cause. And what we're going to see is how Peter utilizes what I call a living illustration to redirect everyone's attention away from himself and from John, and even utilizing the man who's been healed as a witnessing tool to the person of Jesus who is the one who actually healed the man. And it's a powerful picture on what does it mean to be a witnessing church? Uh, it's a powerful picture about the, the necessity of keeping our lives built around the centrality of Christ. It's a powerful gospel message on the power of the name of Jesus. And I wanna just, just present to you... Uh, that it is important for us, as we are called to be witnesses to the gospel, to be able to actually explain to people the hope and the joy that is within us. And when we think of witness, I often talk about the power of our witness. We're not called to be lawyers. Uh, We're not called to argue people into the kingdom of heaven. What we are called to be is witnesses. That is, witnesses that that testify uh, to to the reality of what is working in us and through us, uh, we are called to testify to the person in the power of Jesus Christ. And there is power in that name. It's why that name is uncomfortable for us to speak. It's also the reason that that name is uncomfortable to hear by those who are lost, because that name is an offense to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is power, it is beauty, it's the gospel. And for us as witnesses, we think of witness, um, I think of witness, really, uh, each one of you have the ability to be witnesses through your testimony. But I just want you to know that a testimony is not intended to be a platform by which you talk primarily about yourself. When I was, uh, first uh, became a Christian, I signed with a Christian record deal, and I'd been a secular artist, and I was touring full-time, and I remember playing this big Christian festival. And there was, the thing that struck me is that I got so radically saved out of a life of sin and debauchery uh, that for me, I knew that Christian music was not cool. Like, first of all, like, there's no, we can try all we want, but it's just whatever. It is what it is. I I knew that that I wasn't entering into the Christian market to become the equivalent of Radiohead, that I was never going to be that good. The reason that I did the music that I did is because I wanted to celebrate the love of Jesus Uh, to the best of my ability. But honestly, the reason I toured full-time is because I knew that I had an audience that was captive and was there knowing that it was about Jesus. At least it was supposed to be. What I found when I was on the road is that these Christian artists were utilizing it as a platform to become little rock stars because it was easier than the secular market. And it was deeply disturbing to me. I, I actually loathed it. And I remember hearing one time at this festival, this band that opened, and I won't name the band, and we wouldn't know who it is anyway. Um, but the lead singer began to to witness uh, and, and to share his testimony. But the disturbing thing about his testimony is it was like thirty-five minutes about all of the horrible things that he did. It was like a sin bragging episode in front of like twenty thousand youth group kids. I am like, you know, he's like, and when I was ten, I was dealing cocaine and the streets of Detroit. And at 12, I was running a prostitution ring. uh, And my mom was just attached to a constant drip of heroin. I mean, it was just like the most ridiculous story ever. And I'm like, nobody cares. We can watch that on television. Just tell us about Jesus. And it was like five seconds of Jesus. What I want us to see today when we look at this sermon is how little talk there is about Peter and how Peter immediately t- utilizes the opportunity to point people to the living Christ. I think this is so important. It's one of the reasons I have Gary Breshears listen to all my sermons. Uh, and actually, when I got back from my sabbatical, I remember I took the first five minutes of the sermon to talk about what I did on the sabbatical. And I showed up in Gary's office, and he goes, the first thing he said, I literally like walked in the door and was just sitting down. He goes, way too much of you in that sermon. I'm like, "Jeez." <laughs> Trying to share with them what I did, <laughs> um, but I ask him for that kind of critique because if I'm not preaching Jesus, if we aren't preaching Jesus, we are not functioning as the church. So, with that said, let us consider the name of Christ the powerful name of the living Christ. In verses 11 and 12, this is the outcome of this miraculous event. It says, While he clung to Peter, that is the man who is lame. Uh, Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So here they are in the courtyard in, uh, in Solomon's portico, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, and what does he say? He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? You should know better. Why, look what he says, and why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Why are you looking at us like we have some sort of magic ability? Why are you putting your attention upon us? And here, Peter takes the opportunity for redirection of attention, and now he's going to actually speak to this very Jewish audience to reveal to them that, The Jesus that they are experiencing the power from, the Jesus that was crucified, the Jesus that they saw risen from the dead, the Jesus that they witnessed ascend to the right hand of the Father, the Jesus that sent the Holy Spirit uh, into their lives, that same Jesus that healed the lame man through them is none other than Israel's Messiah. The Peter is not here to give them a new religion, but he is here to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they have believed and they missed him, and so here is the gospel, and what Peter does is he actually utilizes six titles uh, that are attributed to Jesus to help us understand that when we say the power is in the name of Christ, that we're not just talking about a name isolated from a person, but we are talking about a name that represents the living presence of the living risen Christ. And each title that Peter utilizes is actually speaking in to that collective memory of the Jewish people, to their sacred scriptures, showing them that this Jesus is actually your Messiah. And so he utilizes six titles, and we're going to consider five of them today, uh, and they're very powerful, and they actually speak to us today, even where we're at, of how important it is that we understand the, the, the content of our Savior the power of the name of Christ that is connected to his personhood and what it is that he does and is continuing to do and will continue to do until he returns to reign on the new heaven and new earth. And so here we have uh, the gospel declared. He says, so why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at us? This isn't our own power. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, right there, Peter is not preaching a new religion. He is calling their memory back to the the, the basic foundation of the Jewish faith. He says, this Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we believe as Jews. And and so he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. And uh, he says, his servant Jesus. But I want us to stop there with the first title that he utilizes and it is the title of servant he says the god of abraham glorified this servant jesus and so he utilizes the word servant and immediately those jewish listeners and believe me they all knew they weren't they weren't living in a vacuum at this point the the death of christ is still fresh on their minds the person of jesus the power of his earthly ministry they knew who jesus was Peter is connecting the dots of their scriptures with the person. And he says, servant, which would immediately draw to the mind of those, those, those uh, zealous Jews who, who understood their scriptures and were waiting, awaiting their Messiah, not knowing that they had missed the Messiah. They, he would have spoke to them the language of Isaiah, God's chosen servant. In Isaiah 42, 1, remember, it's the very verse that Jesus himself spoke when he entered into the temple uh, after he was baptized uh, and received the, the filling of the Spirit. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And what I want to point out in this utilization of this word servant is is it really speaks uh, not so much of a slave but it speaks of an ambassador. What Peter is saying about Jesus in this particular phrase is he's saying he's drawing their attention to Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacred scriptures that he is God's chosen suffering, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and that he also is drawing his attention to that you saw yourself, the person of Jesus, everything he did as an ambassador to the father was a reflection, a direct reflection of God's very character. I think this is super important for us to recognize that when Peter begins to talk about Jesus as the servant, he is pointing him out as the one who is the ambassador, the revealer of God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he is declaring the very thoughts and heartbeat of the Father. When Jesus is baptized uh, into the baptism of repentance, the, the clouds, the heavens open and the dove descends and the voice from the heavens speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father was pleased with everything the son did because the son reflected the father's heart. Jesus said, I speak nothing unless the father gives it to me to speak. I do nothing unless the father gives it to me to do. And so I think we need to understand that when Peter using utilizing this word of servant, he is saying the perfect ambassador the fulfillment of the sacred scriptures, the very thing that the messianic hope is built upon in Isaiah 42 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This servant is none other than Jesus himself. And what does he say? He says, this servant was glorified. God has exalted him because his work, his his reflection, his, his fulfillment of the work that God gave him to do was perfectly accomplished. And I love what he goes on to say uh, here because because as the suffering servant glorified, remember what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the son of man that came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The father glorified the son through his death. He was resurrected. Remember, Jesus actually said the night of his betrayal in the Upper Room Discourse, he says, Father, I am ready to receive the glory that I once had with you. He gave up glory to enter into humankind for our sake, and he actually was restored to glory through dying on the cross, through his death and resurrection and ascension. And so here we have this reality that the Son of Man came to serve. What this tells us as Jesus as the ambassador comes to reveal to us, when we talk about Jesus to the world, we're not talking about a good teacher. We're talking about a God who actually in his sovereign will desires, uh, refuses to exist without us. Actually, his freedom is to enter into our sin. That the sinless one became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He served... By serving to the point of laying his life down, I will honor my father by giving up my life as a ransom for many. I think this is a powerful reality and a title that would have resonated with the audience and it needs to continue to resonate with us. That the God that we serve, our king is the chief servant. That he actually is glorified. I, I love what Karl Barth said. He said that, that Jesus' uh, glory is wrapped up in his self-humiliation. And I think that that is so true. But not only does he call him servant, he says, he says, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So I want you to see that there are two things going on. He, he identifies the the prophetic servant of Isaiah with the person of Jesus, whom these listeners would have known quite well who they were dealing with. Many of them were probably there on the day that he was crucified, probably yelling, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be upon us and our children. And so Peter is beginning to prick the heart very quickly. He is beginning to place upon them a responsibility, a particular guilt uh, that, was, that was theirs to carry. But I just want you to know that the scriptures continue to speak to us and it's a universal guilt that falls upon all of humanity that when we read these scriptures, that it's not just the Jews 2,000 years ago that were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, but we are told that he died for the sins of the world, which means that all of us have a part to play in the murder of God. That's super important for us to understand. But what does he do? He ties the suffering chosen servant of Isaiah with the person of Jesus, whom these people would understand. But even the name Jesus tells us something about our Savior. What does the name Jesus mean? Well, the Hebrew name is Joshua. That's my name. Uh, but it means the Lord saves. And it speaks to the fact that Jesus himself is the Savior. He is the deliverer. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, remember when Joseph receives the vision uh, from, from the angel, and he says, "She speaking of Mary, he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And I think that this is so fascinating because once again, Peter ties the significance of Jesus as God's chosen servant, as his ambassador, Jesus as the Lord who saves, the deliverer now, he's the one who delivers us, uh, is actually, how does Jesus deliver us? What Peter ties it to is ties it to, the, to our guilt and says that the deliverer was delivered. And I think that this is, this is a powerful picture of how God utilizes the sinfulness and the brokenness of humanity to actually fulfill his redemptive history and purposes. And here we have Jesus laid out before us, God's servant Jesus these two beautiful titles given to help us understand the power of the gospel. I think that when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about him primarily as a teacher, a moral teacher. We're not talking about him as a great historical leader. We are talking about him as his name declares. He is the Savior of the Lord. He is the one who comes to save humanity. He is the Lord who saves. He is the world's deliverer, and his deli- the deliverance that he provides comes through him himself being delivered over to the hands of wicked men, which we ourselves represent and played a part in. The third title that he gives is a fascinating one. He says this, He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So he's pointing out, remember your guys' blame. Remember what you did. Pilate wanted to release him. Pilate said, I see no blame in this man. And yet you delivered him and denied Pilate the ability to free him. And then what does he go on to say? But you denied Pilate. And here's two more titles, the Holy One and the Righteous One, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. So let's consider the third title that's applied to Jesus. It is the title of Holy. Now, the Holy One, once again, Peter is playing on on the Jewish scriptures, Psalm 1610 one of the great messianic psalms says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. Notice how he's helping them see that the prophecies all predicted that the Messiah would die, but would not see corruption. He would be resurrected. And, and think about this in Luke 4.34. Who's the first person to identify Jesus as he truly was? Or should I say the first being to identify Jesus? Jesus as he truly was. Do you guys know? It was a demon. Luke 4:34, 34, uh, Legion. I love it. I don't know what the Greek translation for ha is, but it says ha. <laughs> what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I wouldn't doubt if it's just ha, like it might just be that. Uh, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, That word holy, do you guys remember when we did our our, uh, language of faith uh, series, we considered the word holy. And holy we often think of as merely separation from sin. And Peter is saying that Jesus is holy, but remember, holiness was required of of the Jewish people. God said, be holy as I am holy. You will be a royal priesthood to the nations, but they failed that ability. And what holy means is not simply separation from, but it also means dedication to. As the ambassador of the father, the one who represented the exact imprint, as it says in Hebrew, uh, of, of the father, God's final word is wrapped up in his son, Jesus. He is, the holy, he is truly the holy one. That God says Israel failed on its, uh, uh, in its part to actually represent God to the world. And God says, but through your failure, I will bring forth a Messiah who will actually represent me in everything. And here he is, the Holy One, and Peter says, this is the Holy One whom you denied, who you rejected, who you delivered over to be murdered. And I think that when we think about holiness, we need to think about Jesus. When we talk about the person of Jesus, we are talking about the one who is the, who is the ambassador of God, the servant who laid down his life for the good of others. We are talking about Jesus, the Lord who saves. We are talking about the Holy One, the One who was truly dedicated to God in everything He did, and completely set apart from sin. And He was denied. The Holy One was denied. But He isn't just the Holy One. It says He is the Righteous One as well. And His holiness is His dedicate was His His absolute dedication. Uh, to God. In fact, I would just want to just add one more thing. Uh, N.T. Wright, actually, in his commentary on this passage, had a really beautiful thing to say about the holiness, that Peter wasn't merely uh, drawing their attention to the scriptures, but he was also speaking from his actual experience with the living Christ. And he said, his closest followers and friends had had ample opportunity to see his life close up at first hand and they continued to be astonished at the sheer God-centeredness, the utter integrity and the total love which Jesus always displayed. He was holy, he was holy. And Peter points out, and you denied him, you denied him. And then he says, the righteous one. And the righteous one, think about this, what is Peter beginning to do now? He's beginning to move their attention that the Messiah was this man, Jesus, but this man, Jesus, who is the Messiah, is also God himself. And here we see the Trinitarian thrust begin begin to come into view because for him to call him righteous, you think about uh, this reality of Isaiah 53, verses 11 through 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one... Here he is using an exact title from the prophecy of Isaiah. My servant, there's that phrase again, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, this utilization of the, for the Messiah as the righteous one actually flies in the face of what Jesus himself said to the young rich ruler, because righteous can be defined as, as good or just. And remember what the young rich ruler said to Jesus when he came to him? He said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus' immediate response is, why do you call me good? There is none who is good but God. What is he doing? He was saying, you're not good, and I am God, is essentially what Jesus was declaring. And I think that it's important for us to remember that Paul himself declares, reciting Romans 3.10, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He's, He's pulling from Psalm 14, which says there is none who is good, no, not one. And so Peter here, in declaring that Jesus was the righteous one, The Holy One is declaring that he is one with God. He is declaring his deity in this moment. But he is also saying once again to these Jewish listeners, he is your Messiah and you missed him. Not only did you miss him, but you actually turned against him. You turned against him. The righteous one, notice what he says uh, about the righteous one. He says this. I think this is so powerful. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And there he says, you preferred an unrighteous man, a killer, over the righteous son of God. You gave preference to an unrighteous person rather than giving your allegiance to your Messiah. What is Peter doing to these people? you imagine if I was like in the front row, like I'm so pumped that the, this miracle happened and I'm like a Jewish listener and I was there when Jesus was crucified and I was one of the people like, crucify him. His blood be upon me and my relatives. At this point, and, and all of a sudden, Peter is connecting the dots to the scriptures and I'm like, oh yeah, all the prophecies said the Messiah would suffer and die. I did that. And then you just be like the sneaking back into the crowd. That's what I, I could have imagined like people like, They're all crowded, and then it's just like the slow, like, oh, this is not fun. They are pricked in the heart. Uh, And I think that this is a powerful, uh, powerful picture of the, the robust realities. You know there are 220 titles given to Jesus in the scriptures? That's how beautiful, how amazing our Christ is. Like, Jesus is a word that needs to be filled out with a robust understanding that the scripture isn't talking about a two-dimensional guy that lived 2,000 years ago, but it's talking about the living God who is with us and present and available to us right now. The righteous one. And then look what he goes on to say. I think this this is so powerful. He says, and you ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. What an incredible oxymoron that is. You killed the author of life. You released a killer, and you took the life of one who is innocent, the author of life. Uh, It's incredible. And he says, whom God raised from the dead this we are witnesses. Well, let's consider this, this last title uh, that we're going to think about today, and that is the author of life. And that word author uh, is the Greek word where we get the word architect uh, or originator. In fact, in Hebrews chapter two, that very same word is used of Jesus in, chap- in verse 10. It says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. The founder, the architect of their salvation. Jesus did this. He actually architected the salvation of humanity through his suffering. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that same word is used again. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the architect, the originator, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what is the joy? What is the joy that's set before Jesus? It's you. You're the joy that set before him. I, I've heard people interpret that verse as the joy that was set before him is the, is the opportunity to be restored to the glory, uh, to glory with the Father. I'm like, no, that's not the joy. If that was all that his joy was, he wouldn't have left his father. The reason that he, there was joy that was set before him, the reason that Jesus even tasted the death on the cross, the reason that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, is because we are his joy. Because God is not content to exist without you, because he loves you, because he's crazy about you, even though, as Peter is pointing out, we all are responsible in his death, that we all play a part in his death, that we murdered God, And that we still, to this day, continue to murder God in our hearts when we give our allegiance and our devotion to things other than Jesus. And let me just remind you that sin is not the little things that you do wrong. Sin is the rejection and a rebellion of God's sovereign rule over your life. Every time you make decisions for yourself, even if it's cloaked in the language of religion, it is sin. Sin that is deserving of judgment. And what the gospel declares is that Jesus said, I will take your sin and utilize it as a means to bring you life if you but trust in me. He's a brilliant architect because he's using the architecture of man's sinful, broken corruption, all the ugliness that man can bring forth, that humanity does. God says, I will take all of that into myself and it'll become the means by which salvation is possible the conviction that is happening in this moment. I think this is fascinating because for him to call Jesus the author of life, he is truly playing on blasphemous grounds now for the Jewish listener because he is literally saying that Jesus is the one in whom life originated, in whom life actually exists, and you killed him. You actually killed God is what Peter is saying. That's really, it sounds so much more intense when you just say you killed God. But he is brilliant in his utilization of language. He is playing on this great reality. But what does he say? You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And there is, again, you have this weird vanishing distinction where in one moment he's talking about the man, Jesus. In one moment he's talking about God, the Father. And then the moment there's these blurring of distinctions because that's the beauty of the gospel. It's mysterious. It's the mystery of the Trinity uh, it's not explicit in the text, but it always seems to be present. And I love this because Psalm 39.6, it says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. What did Jesus say about himself in John 10.10? Peter even thinking about how the gospel is always connected to life. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The opening of John the gospel of John in verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That the son, that God created the heavens and the earth through the logos, through the word, by his spirit. Triune reality being played out. You let a killer live and you killed the author of life is what he says. And so what does he end with though? But he didn't stay dead. Now, if If they were able to kill the Messiah and the Messiah stayed dead, then they would really be bummed because Peter is playing deeply upon their guilt. And I want us to understand this because this actually teaches us a lot about what preaching in the church ought to be. It's not about actually breeding in the hearts of people an overwhelming sense of guilt and condemnation, but it is about breaking through the fantasies. And breaking through the non-realities in which we give ourselves to, the culture which actually invades our intellects and our minds and our hearts and feeds upon our desires until they're perverse, the gospel is meant to convict us only that we might see our sickness so that we can turn to the cure. But if we don't see our need to be saved from anything, why would we turn to the Lord who saves if we don't recognize that we are dead in our sin and trespasses, why would we turn to the author of life? And so Peter is brilliantly bringing it to him, and He said, listen, he's not dead, so you don't have to stay in the guilt that I'm making you feel right now. He actually rose from the dead, and we are witnesses to that. Notice, the witness of the apostles was not not a a diatribe on their... Peter didn't say, and then that one time I walked on water, and then another time I... (laughs) I was the first one to call him the Christ. Uh, That's not witnessing. What he does is he ignores himself. Actually, Peter fades out of, of view, and Jesus comes fully into view, the Jesus of the Scriptures. And I think this is so powerful because... Every sermon, every message ought to be a form of major surgery like that. It should cut through the illusions. It should cut through the fantasies. It should cut through the dream worlds that we build our lives around. And I want you to just understand that when he closes out this message, what he says in verse 15, and he's gonna go on to actually tell them what to do because they're clearly cut to the heart and ready to respond to the gospel. He says, and by his name, and his name by faith. So now you just saw that the name of Jesus, Peter just filled that name out. (laughs) He just gave us this beautiful picture that the name of Jesus includes all these realities about the person of Christ, who is the direct representation of the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He says, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. notice he says believing in him and in the power of his name is the way to wholeness that's what he says he's played on their guilt but now he gives them the answer and the solution and I, th- I think this is really important because uh, I-, I was reading the sermon on guilt by Ray Stedman and it was really powerful he's one of the one of my favorite uh, preachers of the Jesus movement. He said, guilt is a destructive force in human lives. We cannot live with guilt. Every one of us has experienced it. The fundamental characteristic of fallen man is that he feels guilty. There is not a person in the world who has ever been free of guilt. It is a very disturbing, unhappy feeling which we find moves quickly to produce other emotions. Guilt promptly produces fear. If you feel guilty, you soon will begin to feel afraid. Remember when you were little and you did things that did not please your parents and felt guilty about it? And then he argues that once fear is produced, it creates two courses. It either moves a person to run and hide or to escape to escape into some form it moves them to, or it moves them to hostility and resentment and bitterness and anger, one or the other. And I think that we see that kind of guilt, a culture of guilt and fear that's played out because we have created so many ways of escaping the fear that we all feel, that we've pressed down into our subconscious. We have figured out so many ways to sedate ourselves with entertainment, with culture, to actually avoid the very real eternal realities that press upon our subconscious. And I think that what's so powerful is that Peter is actually cutting through that and he's making them feel the weight of their sin that he might offer them the solution. And he says, this is where it's at. It's just simply faith in his name. God is demonstrating for you people how he reacts to human guilt. And what does Peter say? How is it that God reacts to human guilt? He reacts in love and grace on the basis of the name of Jesus, by faith in the name of Jesus. One of the most offensive things about the gospel is that we say that there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. God's favor rests solely upon the absolute, total, and perfect work of his son Jesus. And so we are called to place our faith in that work on our behalf. This is why we say that Jesus is the one for the many and the many in the one, he is the representative man. He's the firstborn over a new creation, and he still is in the business of saving people. When we mention the name of Jesus, we are talking about a Jesus who is present, a Jesus who cares, a Jesus who loves, and a Jesus who said, I will draw people to myself if I be lifted up. And I think that this is the thing that we have lost our belief in the power of the name of Christ, and our preaching has become weak and timid as we focus on Five ways to a better life, ten ways to understand yourself a little bit better, seven ways to a healthier marriage, and all the while Christ sits on the sidelines waiting to be wanted. And I think the centrality of the gospel is that what we need is a living reality of Jesus by his Holy Spirit filling us, empowering us to witness to him at whatever cost. Because people are dying, people are perishing. You know, I was thinking about the power of the name of Christ and this week, and in, in closing, uh, significant event, uh, Darcy's granny, uh, lovely Rita Smith. She is an amazing woman. Actually, when I first started uh, dating uh, Darcy, she lived in Portland, and I lived up in Seattle, and granny, uh, granny lived up in Seattle as well. And so to win over uh, my wife, totally, I had to win over her family. And Granny bought into, into my deception long before her parents did. Uh, and I remember I took Granny out on this little this date to her favorite restaurant, which was Spaghetti Factory, uh, down on the water, waterfront. Granny uh, actually just, just went to be with the Lord uh, on Friday. Uh, and what's crazy is that she was just with us a few months ago, and she's a healthy one. Like probably less than a few weeks ago, she was probably on a ladder trimming her apple tree, lived on her own. Her husband passed away over 25 years ago, and she's refused to go into a home and lives in her house and takes care of her kitty, and she is beloved by her community. She's been a part of one church for 50 years, and she, unlike most of us, thinks it's blasphemy uh, to ever miss a Sunday if you're home. Uh, like the only time she misses church at home is because she's here to go to church here where much, I remember she came on Christmas and she's Lutheran, she's, she's Lutheran. And so very devout Lutheran. So besides the little the, the little discrepancies where we'd have little debates. She's like, how could you have not baptized Henry yet? Since <laughs> since he was born, I've been asked that question. Uh, and and I remember when Tim preached on Christmas, she's like, how could he wear a stocking cap when he preaches? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing, the reason I mention Granny is that is that Rita lived a life transformed by the by a recognition that Jesus was real and with her. The name of Jesus was more than a name. The name carried for her the actual living presence of Christ. And Darcy was really stressing on whether to go up and be with Granny. She was in a coma for five days before she passed. and, And family was trying to encourage her not to go. You just had a beautiful time with her. She doesn't look like herself. It's pretty ugly to see her in this state. But we knew on Wednesday, I'm like, Darcy, you gotta go be with her. And so she just packed up and went. I'm like, you were so close to her, just go and be with her. And Darcy said to me, she said, it was the most holy experience she's ever had, sitting with Granny the last two days of her life. She said, and she said, what made it so holy was that we were, we were speaking the name of Jesus over her, praying the name of Jesus over reading the scriptures to her, listening to worship about Jesus around her, and all the, all the while with this woman who's lived her entire life following Christ, beloved by everyone that knew her. Everyone was touched by Rita. And I just think of the legacy that she leaves behind, and the legacy is that she is a woman. It's funny, I was reading the, um, what, what her daughter uh, my mother-in-law wrote about her for the memorial next, next weekend. And it was and the thing, uh, Melody couldn't even help herself. There was just a repetition in how many times she said, Rita, love Jesus. Because it, that's when you were trying to think about what should we say about her. That's what comes to mind. Because the name of Jesus was more than a name. It was a whole reality by which her whole life was built upon. Darcy shared with me just the most powerful moment where Granny, they were saying that she was non-responsive and we don't even know if she could hear them, but there were these signs that she did recognize them. And Darcy said she put, she loved Amazing Grace and put Amazing Grace up to her ear and a tear went down her cheek. That the, mom, the morning she died, Darcy said, Granny, I gotta go home to my family and I just, I need to see you go be with Jesus. I don't wanna leave you before you go and granny passed like literally 30 minutes later. It's as if she knew and was just holding on to be with them for a moment, but realizing that this is not goodbye, it's just good night. That's what the early church used to say, good night. And I think that this is built upon the foundation that Jesus is real, that he changes lives, that he gives us new purpose, new plans, new hopes, new community, entirely new trajectories. And we want to In like Rita, we want to be a people that are transformed by the gospel rather than living by the whims of our own selfish desires that brings destruction. Because I'm telling you right now, if Jesus is not the master of your life, that means something else is. And I'm sure whatever it is, including yourself, it's not good. Give yourself to King Jesus. He's the Messiah. He was the Messiah for the Jewish people that were listening to the sermon 2,000 years ago by Peter. And he's your Messiah today, whether you recognize it or not. And so the gospel is a gospel that saves lives because the name of Jesus speaks of the living presence of Christ who is with us now, who is drawing men and women still to this day to himself. And we continue to this day to tell his beautiful story. May we live with a vibrant understanding of who Jesus is, recognizing that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he loves you. In spite of your guilt, he loves you. He took the guilt into himself. Give your life to him follow him fervently, live well, die well. That is the call upon our lives, amen?